Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson, in for Alyssa Milano. Over the years, this podcast has focused on highlighting those people who are not only experts in identifying the significant problems facing the United States and its institutions, but those who propose bold solutions to those problems. In the past weeks, these problems have expanded significantly. Once again, Joe Manchin, a single senator representing a single state, has blocked critical environmental legislation. Despite being a Democrat, he's tanked the Democratic majority in the Senate, and he can do this because of the filibuster. At the same time, a rogue extremist Supreme Court has undermined the very basic freedoms in our nation, from the right to access abortion, go to school free from religious influence, and even receive full Miranda protections if arrested. Today, we'll look back at two of our episodes where our guests propose ways to get past these critical problems. First, we'll hear from Adam Gentleson. Adam is a writer and former Deputy Chief of Staff for then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. He joined us to discuss his book, Kill Switch, the rise of the modern Senate, and the crippling of American democracy. Democrats swept the Senate races in the traditionally red state of Georgia. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff's victories mean that the Democrats will take control of the Senate. There does remain this thing called the filibuster, which the Republicans will try to use whenever possible. That's why it took Obama 60 votes not 50 to pass the ACA. Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema have said under no circumstances will they participate in turning the Senate into the House. The legislative filibuster in the Senate is standing in the way of getting you and the rest of the country a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, something that has not been updated in this country since 2009. And I love this story, and so I'm going to read it to you. Sam, I am. That Sam I am, that Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? My name is Adam Gentleson. I'm the author of the book Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. And I'm fighting to abolish the filibuster and restore democracy. Sorry, not sorry. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you to discuss the filibuster. So I want to start by asking you to give an explanation of exactly what the filibuster is to my listeners. 
Sure. So the filibuster is not what you think it is. Let's start there. It is not Jimmy Stewart standing on the floor of the Senate holding up a bill as the underdog fighting powerful interests. What it is today is simply a way for any senator to raise the number of votes that are required to pass a bill from a simple majority, which in today's Senate of 100 people is, would be 50 or 51, up to 60 votes. That's all it is. It is. It doesn't require any speeches. It doesn't require any debate. It doesn't even require anybody to go to the floor. All they have to do is send an email or have their staff send an email to their partisan political leaders. And the number of votes that it takes to pass any bill before the Senate, or at least most bills, can go from the simple majority, where it was for the first 200 plus years of the Senate's existence, up to 60 votes. And so in the short, this is why our government is gridlocked. This is why we can't pass anything, because any bill that has to become a law has to go through the United States Senate. Most bills today, especially after the leadership of Senator McConnell, face this kind of silent filibuster that simply raises the number of votes it takes to pass something. And most bills in this partisan polarized age can't get 60 votes to pass. Sometimes they can get bipartisan votes. They can get 50, 55, something like that. But getting 60 is really difficult these days. So this is why we don't have common sense solutions to things like climate change, gun control, income inequality. We have the solutions. They exist. Many of them have bipartisan support, but they can't get 60 votes in the Senate. And so they fail. It's just mind boggling. Talk about taking something that that is logical and simple and making it complex. And no wonder the Senate is broken. Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a lot a bit. How did the filibuster come to be? Is it true that it came out of the work of Aaron Burr? It did, actually. What Aaron Burr did was he made uh, a loophole that made the filibuster possible. And I think what's really important for your listeners to understand is that the filibuster, as much as we think of it as a definitional part of the Senate, the filibuster was not part of the original Senate. In fact, if someone had tried to invent it at the time, the framers probably would have opposed it. They invented the Senate to be a thoughtful counterpart to the House, you know, so the more rough and tumble chamber. They wanted the Senate to be more deliberative, more thoughtful, to take its time with issues. But they didn't want there to be debate that could go on forever. They created specific rules that were available to bring debate to an end. They had different kinds of norms and, and traditions that were used to sort of let a senator know that their time was up. Everybody would start talking over the senator, like the music coming up at the Oscars or something. They would maybe open the doors to the chamber to just let them know that people were done with what they had to say. And then there was a specific rule they had on the books. If talking over people didn't work or opening the doors to the chamber didn't work, there was a rule that would let a majority of senators vote to cut off a debate and essentially end a filibuster if it had gone on for too long. Besides garnering media attention, filibusters seem like a waste of time. So what is a filibuster exactly? Well, that is what they are, a waste of time. Basically, a filibuster is any procedural action that delays a vote in the Senate. The most well-known examples of filibusters are when a senator or group of senators takes the Senate floor for a speech and does not yield it until three-fifths of the Senate agree to end that filibuster. That's the rule that Aaron Burr recommended the Senate get rid of. He didn't recommend that they get rid of it because he thought the Senate should have unlimited debate. He recommended that they get rid of it because no one used it at the time. Obstruction was not a major problem in the original Senate. Senators considered it beneath their dignity to 
talk in an obstructionist way to try to delay their colleagues. They, you know, prided themselves on having a thoughtful debate and they would speak until they'd had their say. Imagine but then they wouldn't that. sit down. Imagine that, exactly. And so in 1806, Aaron Burr had just presided over an impeachment trial, actually. And he made a series of recommendations where he said, let's clean up your rule books a little bit. Let's streamline things. It's very confusing. One of the recommendations he made was to get rid of this rule. So that didn't create the filibuster, but it created a loophole because now there was no formal way to end debate once it started. It took several decades for people to even realize this loophole existed. But then John Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, the sort of spiritual godfather of the Confederacy, came along. And he realized that this loophole existed. And he started to create what we would identify today as the original talking filibuster. And so he started giving long speeches and claiming that he was doing this in defense of free speech and the minorities on limited debate in the Senate, all the sort of things that we hear today in defense of the filibuster. Uh, and so he took this loophole that had been created by Aaron Burr and he turned it into the talking filibuster. And that is how it began. It, this wasn't until the 1830s, 1840s. So this was 50 or 60 years after the Senate was created and after most of the framers had passed away. It was not an original feature. It was brought into being because John Calhoun needed a way to increase the power of the constituency that he represented, which was slaveholders, to prevent the gradual abolition of slavery that was happening at the time. So that's its origin. It was the, the need to empower a numerical minority of senators against the steady march of progress. And often that specifically the progress they were trying to prevent was efforts to alleviate the suffering of Black Americans. First, the abolishment of slavery in the uh, middle of the 19th century, and then later the first rudimentary efforts at civil rights in the early 20th century in the Jim Crow era. Okay. I want to unpack all of that a little bit more thoroughly. So tell me the link between the filibuster and white supremacy, and then how did it come to be associated with Jim Crow? So the link is essentially that throughout our history, there were times when a majority was bent on progress for civil rights or abolition. And a minority, a numerical minority, not a racial or ethnic minority, a numerical minority wanted to stop that majority from making progress. And so they needed to increase their power. That is why Calhoun innovated this talking filibuster in the 19th century. But the talking filibuster was useful only for delay. There were no rules on the books that would allow you to actually stop a bill altogether. He made very clear that his explicit goal was to try to give the minority a veto over anything the majority wanted to do. But the rules of the time still heavily prevailed on the idea of majority rule. And so the best he could do was create this tool to delay bills. And you could basically delay as long as the filibusters themselves could go on. So it's dependent on the stamina of the people using it at the time. Eventually, they had to sit down and shut up, and then the majority could prevail. There was no way to raise the number of votes that it took to pass a bill. So if you could persuade people to come over to your side, you could maybe block it. But if you couldn't win the argument, you lost it, and the bill that you were trying to block came up for a simple majority vote and passed or failed on that basis. I mean, so fast forward to Jim. Yeah. So it's, it's that that was the original connection. But then there was an even stronger connection in the Jim Crow era, because in 1917, a rule was introduced that put a supermajority threshold on the books for the first time. And this supermajority threshold was intended to end the filibuster. Essentially, what was an attempt to restore the rule that they had gotten rid of at Aaron Burr's direction in 1806. But instead of allowing a majority to end debate, as that rule had done, they said it had to be a supermajority to end debate. This was at a time when it was still traditional for the majority to yield. 
And the idea was that a reasonable supermajority of senators could come together and say, okay, we've heard enough, wrap it up, let's move on to debate. What Southern white supremacist senators started to do was use that supermajority threshold and turn it into the de facto vote for passage, but only on civil rights bills. The filibuster itself uh, ought to be modified and not be able to apply to civil rights and voting rights. That's what was used to deny uh, black folks uh, the vote. It was denied, uh, it was used by Strom Thurmond from South Carolina back in 1957 uh, to fight the Civil Rights Act of 1957. We know uh, that there is a difference uh, between denying people constitutional rights and extending debate. And what's really important to understand is that civil rights bills could have passed at this time. The House of Representatives was passing anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws by large majorities starting in the 1920s. These bills were coming over to the Senate where they had majority support in the Senate and they had presidents of both parties who were ready to sign them. So we could have passed anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws as early as the 1920s and 30s. But the Southern senators, in order to maintain white supremacy, started taking this rule and making civil rights bills have to clear a supermajority threshold and turning this vote to end debate at a supermajority threshold into the de facto vote on passage of the bill. But from the end of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1964, when we passed the first major civil rights bill, the only bills that were killed by the filibuster and made to clear this higher threshold were civil rights bills. Holy shit. So why does it still exist? We've dismantled so much of Jim Crow laws and practices, if not enough of their effects. But why do we still have the filibuster? What happened is between the 60s and about the 2000s, people started to use the filibuster for other issues. And senators basically saw how effective it had been at blocking civil rights. And they thought, well, hey, this thing could be really useful on my pet issue. And so they started trying it out and experimenting with it on different issues. And it became a tool that was less directly associated with white supremacy and associated with a wider range of issues. The important thing to note, though, is that during this time, it was still used overwhelmingly to block progressive bills from becoming law and advantage conservatives far more than it advantaged progressives. This was sort of a murky time because, you know, the parties were very mixed ideologically. There were conservatives on the Democratic side and liberals on the Republican side. But there have been a number of studies that have been done that showed that overwhelmingly the filibuster was used to block progressive legislation more than it was used to block conservative legislation. So the reason it still exists is that it got this murkier identity. It wasn't explicitly associated with Jim Crow and white supremacy, but it's still just as nefarious because a lot of the things that it blocked have racial justice consequences. It has uh, blocked efforts to close the racial wealth gap. It has blocked efforts to desegregate schools and to end discriminatory zoning policies. So the effects are sort of less explicitly white supremacist and more subtly. But the net effect today continues to be to empower a predominantly white reactionary conservative minority to wield a veto over anything that the majority in our country wants to pass.
you mentioned the racial wealth gap. What other examples of things that haven't happened because of the filibuster that you can give us? Give us some examples. Well, recently, bills to end climate change, there was a bill to impose a cap-and-trade system that never uh, came up for a vote because of the threat of a filibuster in the Senate. The public option on Obamacare died because of the filibuster. If Obama had only needed a majority of Democrats to pass Obamacare when he came into office in 2009, it would have looked very different, and it almost certainly would have included a public option. We had 58 seats at the time. The reason that we slimmed down Obamacare was this effort to get 60 votes and to chase Republicans, which didn't actually happen, but that was what caused it to be skinny. The DREAM Act would have passed into law. The Manchin-Toomey background checks bill would have passed the Senate and perhaps passed the House and certainly been signed into law if it made it to Obama's desk. And that's just in the past few years. And then you look at Congress today and you want to talk about the racial justice implications. People are using reconciliation right now, which we can talk about because it's an end run around the filibuster that can be used in certain circumstances. But the problem is that there's no way to get around the filibuster for civil rights bills. And so anything that Biden and Democrats want to pass today that would restore the Voting Rights Act, that would end voter suppression, that would extend statehood to D.C. or Puerto Rico, all of these important critical civil rights issues that we're facing today, none of these things will pass if the filibuster remains in place because there are 50 Democrats in the Senate and you're not going to get 10 Republicans to get you to 60 in for these kinds of issues. It's just simply not going to happen. Adam, can you just quickly run down the reconciliation process for my listeners? Yeah, so reconciliation is sort of a fast-track procedure that was invented in the 1970s that's supposed to be narrowly restricted to budgetary items. So anything that meets its narrow restrictions gets to go around the filibuster and pass or fail on majority votes all the way. Reconciliation allows for a simple up or down vote on a specific type of legislation if it reduces the budget deficit. Many major bills have been finalized in this way. The problem with it is that the rules that govern what is allowed to use this track are very strict. So it has to have a primary budgetary impact and the judge of whether it does is one person, the Senate parliamentarian, who gets to rule up or down on whether everything conforms with its rules. So right now, for instance, we're seeing a debate over whether raising the minimum wage can be, but that's a good example because you would think that the minimum wage would have a budgetary impact and it does have some, but it's a very high standard and many things can't clear it. Entire categories of things that will never be able to go through reconciliation include civil rights, gun control, and many climate change solutions will never meet this sort of strict standard. And so all of those things that don't meet reconciliation standards still have to go the regular way, which leaves them vulnerable to being blocked by a filibuster, which they will be if it remains in place. And so if we want to reform our democracy, to fix our democracy, to restore these critical rights issues, the filibuster has to go away or these things simply will not pass. Has it ever been used for the good of the people? There are occasions that Democrats would point to where they say they have blocked bad things that Republicans wanted to do, but there are not that many of them. You look at the Trump administration, and the filibuster didn't help Democrats that much against Trump. Republicans got whatever they wanted to do. They used a couple of these end runs to get around the filibuster, like reconciliation, to pass their tax cuts in 2017. They lowered the threshold on Supreme Court justices to confirm Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. That was after Democrats had lowered it in 2013, but we had kept it in place for Supreme Court justices. And so they lowered it on the Gorsuch nomination and then used a majority vote to get Kavanaugh and Barrett. But there's a structural imbalance here, which is that the filibuster distributes power asymmetrically. It is a tool of obstruction. And so it distributes power more to conservatives who want to stop things 
than it does to progressives who want to pass things. This isn't a perfect structure. There are some instances where progressives can use it to stop bad things Republicans want to do. But on a structural level, it fundamentally advantages conservatives far more than it advantages Democrats. One example I would point to is there was a very serious effort in 1970 to get rid of the Electoral College. It was a bipartisan effort. The reason both parties wanted to get rid of it was in the 1968 election, George Wallace, the Alabama governor, um, who ran as an independent, came very close to denying Nixon an Electoral College majority. Nixon won the popular vote, and if Wallace had performed a little bit stronger, he would have denied Nixon a majority in the Electoral College, sending it to the House, which could have gotten very complicated. Democrats also wanted to get rid of it because Hubert Humphrey lost to Nixon by about 0.7% in the popular vote, but got creamed in the Electoral College, so they had an interest to do it. The amendment to repeal the Electoral College passed the House overwhelmingly. It seemed to have the votes in the Senate. There were more than 30 states that were ready to ratify it. This was a real effort that almost happened, but it was blocked in the Senate by a filibuster. So if you want to talk about consequences for progressives of the filibuster, if it weren't for the filibuster, there's a very good chance that we would have repealed the Electoral College in 1970. So George Bush never would have been president and Donald Trump never would have been president. There are individual cases where the filibuster can be useful to Democrats and progressives. But if you look at the big picture, overwhelmingly, progressives would benefit more by getting rid of it, and conservatives would hate to see us get rid of it. And that's why you see Mitch McConnell working so hard to try to prevent Democrats from getting rid of it. You mentioned Justice Kavanaugh before. You worked for Harry Reid, who famously ended the judicial filibuster. So what do you say to people who argue that if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have Justice Kavanaugh, we wouldn't have Justice Barrett, and the huge, colossal reshaping of the federal judiciary under Trump? So to that, I would say, if you think that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster those justices without getting rid of the filibuster himself. I hear this argument a lot, and it's something that I've encountered a few times. I think it's unlikely, put it that way, that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster those justices without getting rid of the filibuster himself. And I think he probably would have done it early on. When we got rid of it in 2013, we didn't actually get rid of it on judicial nominations. It was executive branch nominations that were at issue at the time. But when we made the move, we included judicial nominations in the reform so that it was included for all nominees except Supreme Court. So what McConnell would have done was the first time, if we so if we had left it in place, what McConnell would have done was the first time Democrats filibustered any nominee when Trump came into office, he would have used that as an excuse to go nuclear for all nominees. Are we seeing the end of the filibuster or the beginning of the end? Today's pattern of obstruction, it just isn't normal. It's not what our founders envisioned. Democrats play a little hardball. It's time to change. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. Blowing up Senate rules to get the president's nominees confirmed. It's really not about the filibuster. Uh, it's another raw exercise of political power to permit the majority to do anything it wants whenever it wants to do it. Near the end of the Trump regime, the former president nominated Amy Coney Barrett to replace the iconic Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This created an extreme right supermajority on the court. Chamber Brummer, executive director for Outreach with Demand Justice, joined us to discuss efforts to reform and expand the Supreme Court. 
Hi, I'm Tamara Brummer, and I'm fighting to add four seats to the Supreme Court. Sorry, not sorry. Tamara, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Will you talk to us about what the judiciary is supposed to look like? Mm, what it's supposed to look like. One would argue that the judiciary should be reflective of the American people and the people who make our country go. But if you've ever looked at our federal judiciary, and particularly maybe our Supreme Court might be a better example for folks listening, our Supreme Court doesn't really reflect visually what America looks like. It's overwhelmingly white, male, and older. No shade to older folks or white men or old men, but they are an overwhelming majority of our federal judiciary. And so when you think about who understands and interprets the law of the lands and our constitution and the rules, you're only getting a very limited purview of that interpretation, right? Or what the constitution means for all of us. And so our judiciary should look like you and me. It should look like women and women of color, people of color. But in 113 justices, for instance, of the Supreme Court, there's never been a Black woman. There's never been an Asian person. There's never been a Native American. So we've got a lot of work to do to get our courts to actually look like America. And why is that important? I think it's very important because if you think about our society and our ecosystem, you want to make sure, for instance, if you're a defendant going in front of a judge, what would it mean for you? Alyssa, if you went in front of a judge and your judge had never, I don't know, argued in front of a court before, or if your judge only had experience defending corporations and oil companies, or if your judge in their lawyer life, their past life, had only represented the federal government, but never just regular people. So making sure that we have a diverse judiciary, not just in terms of demographics, which is very important, right? But also in professional experience means that we have a more deeper, robust understanding of how our laws and our country work and operate. And I think that we've seen this recently in some of the hearings that we've had around already people going in front of the Senate Judiciary around lower court nominations. White men are not asked any questions about (laughs) does being white or a man influence you being a judge. However, when it's Black women who've been asked, they've always been asked, will your race and your gender influence your decision as a judge? Those women have said no, and I believe them. But I think what we're really getting to is that you have a lived experience in the body that you have in this world and how you walk through the world. And that we want to have people who have had different lived experiences walking through this world, being able to interpret our laws and be able to give us equal justice under the law for all of us is really important when we are dealing with our federal judiciary. But right now, it's really tough, I think, for folks to get a fair shot and for us as Americans to get a fair shot, for our democracy to get a fair shot in the current structure of our government. Can you just break down for my listeners what happened during the Trump years? Oh, absolutely. I like to talk about it this way. Although Donald Trump was a one-term president, he was very successful in keeping his legacy alive throughout the federal judiciary. I don't know if folks know this, but during his tenure, him and Mitch McConnell were able to confirm over 200 federal judges. So that's 200 plus people who will have a lifetime appointment on the federal court. I mean, in the Supreme Court, he put three people (laughs) on the bench. And so we all talk a lot about Mitch McConnell and how we all understand how that man's still alive. But at the end of the day, he now has over 200 Mitch McConnellites who will carry on his legacy. So what really Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and Republicans have been very crystal clear about doing and like laser focus is 
laying out the part of the federal government that they feel like they have the most control over. And that's the federal judiciary. They've been laser focused for multiple decades. And I think that now as Democrats and those of us on the left and as progressives, what we're realizing is, oh my goodness, this is something that we need to be concerned about as well. But we're catching up while Republicans and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have been laser focused for years. I feel like we're always a little reactionary instead of proactive, but especially in this case, because as you said, and I think it's important for the listeners to know and understand that this has been part of the plan for the GOP for decades. And we are seeing this plan come into fruition. And I would just love for you to remind everyone what McConnell did with Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch. Oh, absolutely. So when President Obama was in the last year of his term, he was like, I have an opportunity to put a Supreme Court justice on. We're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But Mitch McConnell said, no. (laughs) He said, I'm not doing it. The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. It is the president's constitutional right to nominate a Supreme Court justice, and it is the Senate's constitutional right to act as a check on a president and withhold its consent. What he did was totally legal, and he decided that he was going to make the rules up as he goes along, but he definitely said, I'm not going to allow this president his rightful place of putting in a justice. I'm going to wait. So he waited almost 16 months There were 16 months between the passing of Scalia to the appointment of Gorsuch. We just totally forgot about that. And Mitch McConnell just decided to ram it through. And I think that's important for folks to understand about why the federal courts are so important to Republicans. People should remember, you probably remember, I remember, this was not popular with the American people. The American people said, you absolutely need to let President Obama appoint the next Supreme Court justice. The Republicans didn't care about what was popular. They cared about keeping power. And so the courts for them are their way of keeping a stronghold on our democracy and on keeping a stronghold on their power. And, you know, a conservative ideology that I think if 2020 was any reflection of where the American people are, it's that they are in favor of more progressive policy, obviously, with the turnout and how large of a number Biden won by. They saw what was going on and they voted against that. So the fact that Trump and McConnell and the GOP have all of these judges now in place. And by the way, I just want to remind everybody that McConnell also rushed through Amy Coney Barrett when a big majority of mail-in votes were already cast and ballots were cast. And to him, that was totally fine, even though the American people were like, wait a minute, you know what, maybe this isn't fair. Since people already voted, maybe you don't get to say, you know, since we're in the middle of an election, maybe you don't get to appoint someone now. And they did it anyway. So now we are in the situation. And not that that's to say that the courts were in great shape before Trump, but is there a drastic difference before and after Trump? I'm not a historian on that, but I would say just anecdotally, what we're seeing is a quicker decline in our democracy, like a chipping away. The Trump judges are the ones who have been fighting us on immigration. They've been fighting us on environmental justice. They're fighting us on reproductive justice. They're fighting us on labor rights. I'll give you another example. So John Roberts was appointed before Donald Trump, right? 
However, John Roberts has spent his whole professional career dismantling the Voting Rights Act. So he was able to do that in 2016. But here we are now in this new Trump era of judges, what he was able to dismantle, we are seeing it throughout this past election. The Supreme Court decided that during a global pandemic that people still need to go vote in person. That was a decision by this conservative bench. This same conservative bench is from the lower course to the top have told us that it's okay to keep babies in cages. They're telling us that environmental issues, you can't really sue an oil company for doing something. We're talking about workers' rights. There's been a real chip away of that during this era. But I think the other thing that folks should really understand is like, just because Donald Trump is out of office, those judges will still remain. So the same way that we've seen all this wave of voter suppression laws happening at state levels, don't be surprised. If those get passed or they don't get passed, that the federal judges that Donald Trump appointed will have their say. They will get a say in what happens. In his first two and a half years in office, Donald Trump has struggled to get things done. Many of his plans have been blocked by the courts. He hasn't been able to build his wall or put a citizenship question on the census. But there is one thing Trump has done exceptionally well, remaking the federal judiciary. Since he's taken office, Trump has nominated 191 so-called Article III judges who are appointed for life. 144 of these nominees have been confirmed. That's over 50 more judges than Barack Obama had confirmed at this point in his presidency. So the difference I really would say is that we are doing amazing work on the ground. People worked so hard to win in 2020 from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket for progressive ideas and policies. But the way that our courts are currently structured now, all of our fights could be for naught, right? If you think that a lower court judge could just erase all the good work we're doing because they don't interpret the law the way that we know that they could and that they should, that's the difference. I think that folks should think about in this post-Trump judicial world, What's the work that you're doing now? How will that court work to dismantle that work? And that's what they're all about. years ago, the right could not stop screaming, activist judges, right? Every time there was a nominee from President Obama or they lost in court, didn't they just spend four years stocking the court with activist judges? Yes. And four years before that and four years before that and four years before that. I don't think that any of your listeners watch Fox News because they think it's a good source of news. But say they're watching Fox News right now. Fox News has spent a significant amount of time talking about why we should not reform the Supreme Court. They call it court packing. They call it about liberals trying to take over our courts. To me, that means we're doing the right thing. That means that we're playing in their field because that's where they feel their power is at. So yes, they're going to talk about us having activist judges, but they literally have activist judges. Like Amy Coney Barrett, Full stop. When we talk about these activist conservative judges, the most recent judge on the bench, Amy Coney Barrett, is exactly textbook that. It's such a nightmare because it's literally everything as activists and advocates, everything that we said was going to happen between Kavanaugh and Barrett. We're seeing it. We're seeing it come to life right now. So let's go back a little bit 
to the Supreme Court. Has it always been nine judges? It has not. A little bit of trivia fact for folks listening at home, the Supreme Court has changed seats seven times. You don't need a constitutional change to add seats to the Supreme Court. The founding fathers actually thought that the court should have a lot more kind of flexibility because of their role. The court's supposed to interpret our law. So we need to have some flexibility in who we put on that bench. So the last time we actually added seats to the Supreme Court was during the Civil War. And the reason we did that was because we did not want white supremacists trying to dictate (laughs) the direction of our country. There's been changes in the courts. It's been around our democracy and what our democracy looks like and how we need to really adapt to that. So no, to your point, our Supreme Court has not always been nine folks. And the Constitution says nothing about the size of the Supreme Court? Not a thing. It's silent on that. So often people will say, well, we can't do anything about that because it's a constitutional amendment. That's not true. You don't need a constitutional amendment to add seats to the Supreme Court. Let's talk about some of the remedies. But first, can you explain to my listeners the difference between court packing and court stacking? Court packing and court stacking. I think that's a lot of rhetoric in a sense. I think that when we were talking in 2020, when Amy Coney Barrett got onto the bench, I think progressives were like, well, what do we do? We need to add seats to the courts. And then Mitch McConnell said, well, I don't believe in court packing. And court packing is what Republicans have absolutely done. They've packed the courts with their ideologues. And what we're saying, if it's court stacking, if that's the case, then it's about let's add up and put the right amount of folks in our court to bring back a balance. And also, if we're being very real, they stole two seats from the American people. So the least that they could do is give us two more. By adding a 13 seats total, that's also reflective of the number of lower courts, like at the circuit courts. So in history, the Supreme Supreme Court has the same number of justices as our lower courts and our circuit courts. So having 13 Supreme Court justices actually follows the same kind of theory and logic and will reflect what our lower courts look like as well. Why is adding four justices the right number? Instead of 20? (laughs) Instead of anything. It seems like we're advocating for four added seats. And I'm just curious as to why that is. It really goes back to the reflection of what the lower courts look like. Since there's 13 circuit court judges, we're saying add to this, by adding these four additional seats. But it's also about thinking, like I said, if we're thinking about this politically, if the American people lost two seats, the least you can do is give us those two seats. But just really technically, it's because we wanted to reflect the lower court number of seats. And that's what we've done in history as well. So there's been a precedent set for that. And so we're gonna continue that precedent. Our institutions were designed to change as the times change. There is no filibuster in the constitution. It does not demand we have nine justices. And the Constitution was certainly not written to prevent the overwhelming wants and needs of the public to be able to be cast aside by so few people. We are not an autocracy. Our democracy, and yes, a democratic republic is a democracy, requires it to adapt to the changes of the world. It needs to change to meet challenges, to thwart those who would manipulate it for their own power. People like Joe Manchin or Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh or Samuel Alito. The Constitution was built to make these manipulators irrelevant. The Senate was designed to deliberate, vote, and move legislation forward. It was never meant to be a place where one person gets to decide for everyone. This is why we have so many checks and balances in our government. Or at least we used to. It's time to end the filibuster, to expand the court and to move our nation forward. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.